to welcome Riska Vanderhorst and Professor Sarah Vickerstaff onto today's Mature Movers podcast. Mariska and Sarah have recently published some research together, posing the question, is part of ageism actually ableism? Mariska is a lecturer and assistant professor at VU University Amsterdam and an honorary researcher at the University of Kent. Mariska's special interests focus on older workers and disability. Sarah is a professor of work and employment at the University of Kent. And over the last 20 years, Sarah has delved into research focused on paid work in later life and retirement transitions. Both Sarah and Mariska have been involved in numerous research publications and have received high-level recognition for their work. Sarah is a keen gardener and aspires to have a massive greenhouse one day in her garden where she'll spend most of her time. And Mariska loves music and actually plays the flute. So I'm really looking forward to discussing their research, ageism and ableism within the workplace and much more on today's Mature Movers podcast. How did you guys meet and then decide to do this research project together? Um, yeah, so uh, we met because I applied for a job that Sarah advertised um, back in, when was this, 2014? Probably. Um, and um, I just came out of my PhD and I uh, my PhD was about aspirations of men and women and the consequences uh, of that for their careers. And uh, around it, there was a lot of discussion around um, people needed to work longer as well. So I kind of wanted to move more towards older workers. And this position that Sarah advertised was about uh, older workers and gender differences uh, in that. So I applied for that and was very lucky to get it. Uh, so that's how we met. Yes, that was a project um, on um, employers and older workers. Um, and it, it was a number of case studies. And it was looking specifically, I've been doing that kind of research since the early, uh, well, since the early part of this century. And um, this was specifically to look at how employers or whether employers had changed their practice, given that there'd been a lot of policy changes. So state pension age had gone up, age discrimination legislation had come in, mandatory retirement ages were going. So it, it seemed an opportune moment to sort of go and see whether we could detect major changes in how uh, organizations were uh, in employing uh, and managing older workers and in particular um, the, the, the key skills that Mariska brought to that project because we also wanted to look at some of the, the quantitative data sets uh, was uh, you know a great ability uh, at, at quantitative research so we were able also to look at the English longitudinal study of aging and some of the trends in employment uh, for older workers brilliant she was, she was the best candidate by a long way so. oh fantastic what a compliment <laughs> um so let's go back a little bit and look and talk about why individually as, as as people you decided to focus on this route of research um specifically i know a lot of the work that most you do is um 
around labor um, and maybe not always about aging. But I know, Sarah, you're very interested in a lot of your current research has been focused on aging. Um, What kind of kickstarted that triggering thought or passion to go down that route? Let's start with Mariska. Um, well, well, actually, for, for me, it started with um, getting out of a PhD, hearing a lot of the discussions around needing to work longer, and uh, that was a lot in the media around that uh, time as well. And I was interested in seeing whether uh, gender differences that I looked at uh, earlier on, how that then also played out around uh, older workers. Um, and that is why I applied for that uh, position. And then I remain very much interested uh, in that. So most of my research is still about older workers. Um, and then when we got, uh, I worked with uh, Sarah on a couple of uh, papers and others in the project uh, there as well. And then uh, towards the end of that, I uh, started to read more about ageism as well. and. I recognize a lot of that as maybe not being about age specifically, uh, but more about ability disability. Uh, So during a lunch, I pitched that to Sarah, uh, what do you think about uh, this? And she uh, responded with, well, I buy that argument. So we wrote a research proposal for that uh, together after that and um, got further into that. And I'm still looking at similar topics as well now in a project that is headed by Edinburgh about sporty healthy aging at work and very recently also now involved in a project in the Netherlands about uh, health and older workers so that's me (laughs) okay for me um I in the past I'd done work on youth transitions into the labor market so looking at the transition from school uh through education college or, or apprenticeships into work um, and about the turn of the millennium, I, I sort of started, it started to come on my radar that there was some debate about uh, retirement transitions uh, of, of older workers. And some of the things I wasn't much around at that time, some of the things I, I read uh, chimed with debates and ideas that uh, were prevalent in uh, the youth transitions literature. Um, and then uh, the Joseph. Roundtree Foundation had a stream of funding that they were calling for proposals, uh, which was called something like Transitions After 50. I think it might be called Transitions After 50. And I had a look at uh, what they'd already funded, um, the work that was going on there. And as a sociologist of work and someone who'd always looked at how organisations recruited, managed, trained, developed made redundant, etc. Uh, their employees. Um, I was very struck by how the literature on retirement really didn't include employing organisations. So it tended to be a, economists looking at individual variables. So how much does finance affect someone's decision to retire or health? You know, how much does health condition a decision to retire? A little bit on caring responsibilities, but not not so much. So there was that strand of work. 
Um, and then there was a more social policy, and that was mainly economists doing that kind of work. There was a social policy strand um, that was interested in how people felt about retirement, their experience in retirement, whether they were poor, whether they had enough money. Um, uh, and if you like, the more kind of community end uh, of retirement. But there really seemed to be almost nobody looking at the employment of older workers. And it struck me as very odd because, of course, people retire from an organisation. They don't retire in the abstract. Um, so I thought, well, organisations have got to have some impact on this um, because they have an impact on, you know, people getting jobs and losing jobs and uh, etc. So um, that was what inspired my application to Roundtree. And I was lucky enough to get that that grant in the early um, 2000s and um, which was on. Um, well, I can't remember what it was called now. I think it was the employer's. Hmm, trying to look at my bookshelf, remind myself, uh, the, the employer's role in, in retirement or something of that sort. And that was case study uh, based. And that's really what started me off. And at that time, uh, back in sort of 2003, four, uh, it, it was seen as a rather eccentric interest, if I'm honest. Um, you know, when I went to conferences to give a paper or I was talking to other academics, they said, what are you working on? I'd sort of say, oh, older workers and retirement. Uh, and they would sort of glaze over, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of go, oh, interesting, you know, uh, bye. Um, <laughs> um, but of course, within about five years, certainly within 10 years, it was about as hot a topic um, as you could imagine, uh, governments were extremely interested in, in why people retired early and what might encourage them to, to not retire early. Um, and huge numbers of people from all kinds of disciplines started to move into the, into the area. Yeah, so you're you're kind of sorry, you're kind of a pioneer in that in that space, really, because you you recognize that lack of research and, and understanding in that area. Um before you carry on, I just wanted to kind of get a better idea as to why you think that it's taken so long to develop good quality research when it comes to, I mean, aging in general, the research isn't great, um, but also specifically within the labour market. Well, because I think it's, oh, sorry, Mariska, did you? No, 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 go. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's because it, in many ways it, it's related to ageism. Um, you know, as a society, we worry a lot more about youth transitions than we typically worry about retirement transitions. Um, and the same in, in the labour market, we're more worried about young and prime age workers and how they're getting on. So I think there is some kind of ageism in that. And uh, I also sort of think that the old traditional idea of retirement was that someone effectively lost their economic value. They ceased working and they sort of no longer counted in the labour market. Um, and of course, once you start to do research in this area, you realise that retirement is a process, not an event. I mean, some people drop off a cliff. You know, they work full tilt until the Friday, they retire. And as people used to say to me, they're dead by the Sunday lunchtime. Um, but they're, they're no longer counted so much in the kind of labour statistics. But as the early work that, that we did showed, it's, it's a much more complicated set of transitions than that. 
Um, some people modify their hours and retire gradually. Some people come in and out of the labour market for a while. Some people go self-employed. There's actually quite a lot of different things going on. Um, so I think it was this general tendency, really, to sort of feel, well, people retire, they have pensions and they're no longer a labour market concern. Um, and I think also that just generally society finds younger people more interesting than they find older people. Um, and that's, you know, that's been the case throughout all of my research, I would say. Mariska, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, I, I basically agree that uh, um, maybe also uh, we had the first shift to early retirement and that was also related to older workers making space for more younger uh, workers. Uh, so that may also have something uh, uh, to do with that. And at some point uh, there became the question like, okay, but if everyone ret uh, retires early uh, and we're living longer to what degree is that still affordable? And uh, maybe older workers should work longer. And then there became much more of a policy interest in older workers as well. And with that also a research interest. Uh, yeah, yeah that's, no. ab that's absolutely right. I think that point about, um, you know, early retirement really being the, 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 in a sense, the sort of aspiration for a lot of people, uh, certainly in, in sort of... Um, white collar and, and professional and managerial jobs, uh, the expectation that they'd probably retire at, at 60 at the latest um, was very prevalent. Um, and of course, it allowed a lot of organisations uh, to fairly painlessly reduce their headcount. You know, so if they needed to, to, to sort of trim their workforce, there was probably a group of 55 plus people who, with a bit of pension enhancement, would be quite happy to go. Um, and then, yeah, the balance tipped and that came to be seen as a, a as a problem. And indeed, it came to be seen that those people were um, individually not fulfilling uh, their societal obligation by by retiring early. Uh, that actually they should stay in work and carry on working for as long as they can. So it really, it really flipped. Yeah, and it's absolutely fascinating. And there, there's so many topics of discussion in just <laughs> that last two minutes of discussion, which we could kind of delve into. Um, so this is a bit of a, I'm going to throw that in there. What do you personally think is an optimal age to retire? So we'll start with you, Mariska. <laughs> I'm not sure there is an optimal age to retire. I think that a lot depends on what uh, people want, what the context is that they're in, uh, that uh, the type of uh, employment that they're in, the perceived and real opportunities to uh, change uh, if they uh, want to. I think it's related to a lot of different factors and there is not one optimal retirement age. Yeah, I'd agree entirely with that. I don't think there's an optimal age that fits everybody. Um, people will have different ideas. And the fact that now in the UK, we don't have mandatory retirement ages, apart from a few uh, isolated cases. So you cannot be made to retire because you reach 65 or 66. Um, is clearly a good thing because, there, you know, there are people who want to carry on working. 
and it was very much unfair and and, and inappropriate that they were forced to retire simply because they reached a certain age. But equally, we know if you look at health statistics about, um, you know, the, the, the ages at which people start to sort of get chronic illnesses of one sort or another. I mean, I have osteoarthritis, for example, um, that, you know, that is very variable. And if you've done manual work all your life or you've, you know, you've had very stressful work, if we think about nurses, you know, very appropriate today, um, you know, there, there's kind there's certain areas of work which really have uh, a, a, or take a toll on your physical and mental health. So if you've been doing those for, for 30, 40 years, you know, your ability to carry on working may well be prejudiced. And then not being able to retire at 63 or, uh, you know, 64, whatever, whatever it might be, can be a real problem. And that really is, is in a sense, your question um, shows one of the problems of policy in this area that if you have a single chronological age for something it will always be nothing more than an average and there will be people on either side of that average average that it doesn't suit I mean you could say the same for you know voting ages with young people you know there's plenty of 16 year olds who would probably you know be very good at voting and would make you know good decisions there's probably some 25 year olds that don't know you know what the hell is going on so if you just pick an age it's it's never going to fit everybody and that's tremendously true for state pension ages mm. um no yeah fantastic and so, like super insightful for the things you need to consider when you want like you want to retire and you're thinking about okay what what when do I want to retire? Like, I think even as a younger person, it's important to start considering those things. And it's not something that's considered at a younger age because it is that forgotten group. And it's that kind of, no, let's not talk about that yet. We'll, we'll wait We'll wait a while. Um, so I wanted to kind of move more into the age, ageism element of your research by first starting off talking about why we group people based on age um and this is a few questions in one is this another form of discrimination um and maybe is there a better option for grouping people so for example an over over 65 exercise class or a um oh I can't think of something now um but you know like we think okay you're like 16 to 25 you're in this group you guys are in this group and I think it overlaps into the ableism disability research that you guys have done but please talk much more about that and I will stop talking because I am not an expert <laughs> uh, ageism definitely is an, another way of grouping uh, that comes with certain stereotypes that can lead to discrimination similar to other groupings on other characteristics that people have uh, for example, gender, ethnicity, uh, different uh, uh, characteristics. It is a very broad grouping as well. So 50 plus, if you think of that, then 50 to 100, I mean, zero to 50, you wouldn't put in one age group. So 
it's a very strange grouping as well. Um, but yeah, Sarah, do you have Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I do an exercise sometimes if I do a, a talk on age to a sort of non-specialist uh, audience, I will give them a, sort of a little questionnaire thing, a, 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 an age profile document to fill out. And instead of it being the standard one, you know, let's say 19 to 25, 25 to 34, or something like that, and then 65 plus, um, I will actually make the lower age bands big. So it might be 19 uh, to 45, uh, 46 to 59, 60 to 70, 70 to 80, whatever. Um, and I'll just say, oh, oh, you know, when you get a chance, please fill that out. And I'll carry on talking. And then I can see people, especially people who are, say, 35, they're looking at this and they're thinking, well, I'm in this group 19 to 44. I mean, you know, what kind of group? What's that? You know, and then I, you know, eventually someone always goes, can I just ask you about this thing that you've given us to fill out? Um, and of course, it's a very simple way of making the point. Well, you would typically put me in the 65 plus group you know, which means I'm exactly the same as someone who's 85 or 69 or 102, uh, which is absurd. Uh, I'm just pointing out to you that you don't particularly like being in this age group that I've defined as, as 19 to 44. Um, and it just makes people think, you know, it, they've never thought about that before. Uh, and I think now you can begin to see, certainly over the last five years or so, I would say now, those typical age bands that you get in questionnaires or surveys or things, they have started to change. Uh, it's much less typical now to see that sort of 65 plus. Also, of course, 65 in the UK context is daft anyway, because the State pension age is 66 now anyway. So 65 plus is completely nuts. Um, so, yeah, and those things are important because they they communicate, don't they, in a subtle, un inarticulate and unarticulated way that sort of when you get to 65, that's it. Then You know, everything over 65 is all the same. There's no differentiation. And we've argued that actually you could say that people become less like each other as they age because the accumulation of life experiences actually makes them much more various and di di diverse, whereas a lot of 19 to 25-year-olds, well, you know, they've been through education, they've started to come into the labour market, they've started having relationships of whatever sort, but, you know, they haven't done so much, so actually they're rather more like each other in some ways than you would expect, you know, 67-year-olds to be, say. So, yeah, I think there's a there's a real danger in that, um, that we use this, and it's something we wrestle with in our area of research because older workers are typically defined as being 50-plus. Now, we know from our work that there's actually a, typically a big difference between the orientation of someone who's 52 their orientation to pension retirement issues in comparison to someone who's 62 um, because the 62-year-old may already have retired or may be closer to it. 
And I've interviewed over the years many, many 52-year-olds who will sort of say, oh, retirement, I haven't even thought about it yet. Um, I mean, I suppose I should. Uh, but yeah, no, I haven't. Uh, haven't really thought about it. And, and my pension, yeah, I think it's okay. I don't really know. Um, you know, whereas sort of a 63, 64 year old's probably got a bit more of a handle on, on those things. Uh, but then again, it, it depends on your health. It depends on your finances, your domestic circumstances, whether you're caring for people, your family structure, your community, um, as to you know how old you feel the significance or otherwise that you attribute to that and everybody around you attributes to that. Um, so, yes, our, our, our weddedness to chronological age categories is, is really part of ageism, I think. And not just ageism against the old, but also ageism against uh, young people as well. You know, the assumption that anyone who's under 19 is sort of young, feckless doesn't know anything right <laughs> <No>, yeah <laughs> i am going to move on to the next question which is part of ageism actually ableism so before we start i wanted to get uh, maybe marissa you can potentially do this if you can or maybe as a team um can you explain the differences between disability ableism and impairment the, the, there are different ways that terms are used and i, I don't think for everything there is a complete consensus on how to use all of the terms. How I would distinguish different terms um, is um, that the impairment uh, is related to the um, health condition that someone has. So for example, I have knee problems and because of those knee problems, I walk with crutches. Uh, And that is an impairment that I have. Uh, disability is much uh, more the problems uh, that uh, arise from a social relational perspective uh, uh, that's called as an interaction between the environment and uh, an impairment that you may have. So, for example, um, it's not really an issue uh, if you cannot uh, uh, walk stairs if there are no stairs around, if there's always an elevator, for example. So it's that interaction, uh, not only the physical interaction, but also with um, how people are treating people with disability, uh, with an impairment, uh, that's all part of that term disability uh, in that. And then ableism is a term um, that is used of the normalcy of having an able body quote-unquote able-body, that um, uh, there is this assumption that uh, on which society is built that uh, assumes that everyone is able to hear to a certain degree, to see to a certain degree, to walk to a certain uh, degree, uh, same uh, cognitive mental functioning to a certain degree. There's this normal, fully human person uh, again, air quotes there that you will not hear on the podcast. Um, <laughs> that uh, are um, uh, that the society is built on, uh, and if there are deviations uh, from that, then that is more difficult to get around because society isn't uh, built around that. Yep, I'd agree with that. And what what I would add is in the work context that a lot of employer policy. And a lot of our ideas about um, 
recruitment and selection, training, development, career progression, etc. It's sort of built around a, a concept of the ideal worker. Um, and the ideal worker is a prime age worker, probably 25 to 49, maybe. Um, they're male because they, you know, they don't have any caring responsibilities. They're fully able to come in and devote themselves entirely to their work. Um, and a lot of jobs are framed on the assumption that there is an ideal worker out there already trained, you know, by somebody else already trained to come in and, and do that work. Now, when you think about it, actually, it's really probably less than half the working population, much less than half the working population uh, that fits this ideal worker, uh, you know, type. Uh, there's an age group, there's younger people and older people that don't fit it. Lots of women don't fit it because they 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 want or they need to work part time or they're juggling um, other kinds of caring responsibilities. And of course, some men are doing that uh, as well. Um, then there's a whole raft of us with health conditions or impairments or, you know, who, uh, you know, good at some things, not so good at others, a bit disabled by our environments because there's heavy doors that we can't push open and the lift doesn't work, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and so on and so on. So, uh, you know, that's in the work context. That's how ableism kind of manifests itself. It, it sort of manifests itself by the idea or the way in which jobs are framed for a mythical ideal uh, worker. Yeah, what that's a lot of things to think about, I guess, because I would perceive myself as that ideal person, but the fact that it's probably going to be a man, and, and it's so true because if, I mean, I run my own business, but if I wanted to go into a job, I am of childbearing age, that would be a massive consideration as to longevity of, is she going to be here or are we going to have to pay a paternity leave? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, lots to think about there. And there's um, a good example of this on retention, you know, this, uh, you know, how long somebody is going to stay with an organisation. Um, and in a lot of organisations, that's not insignificant because it costs quite a lot to, to recruit somebody then there may be a degree of, of training uh, necessary to get them used to whatever it is they're doing in your specific organisation. So you, you want to reduce turn, labour turnover. You don't want a kind of constant churn. It's not good really for anything. It costs you money, probably means that your product or your service is not as good as it could be because there's this churn of, of, of staff. Um, and it's a very common assumption. Oh, well, you know, do I want to employ this 56 year old because you know they might retire uh, a bit like the do I want to employ this woman because she might want to go off and have a baby um, but actually when you look at retention statistics um, I mean people who get taken on in jobs in their 50s and even in their 60s tend to to stick around you know, they're, they're very pleased to have been given a job because they know that the labour market is very difficult for older people. So they tend to be a, a pretty good bet, whereas, you know, betting on a 25 year old still being around in 10 years time or a 35 year old or a 45 year old, is probably somewhat less secure. Um, but again, it, it, it's the frame that we bring unconsciously 
you know, oh, here's someone who's probably not going to be around for too long. Or, you know, here's a woman who is perhaps going to have children. Oh, this person's wearing, uh, using crutches. Does, you know, does that mean they're not going to be able to move around? Or they've got some other kind of health issue that I can't see, you know, but that might affect how, how they're able to work. Instead of actually doing what you should be doing which is sort of saying well who is this person what skills have they got what potential have they got what do they want to give to the organization and and recruiting them on that basis Mm, absolutely so um would you guys be able to summarize your research findings um regarding is part of ageism actually ableism for us i know that's a big question (laughs) because you could probably talk about it for ages (laughs) Um, so, so I, I think the short answer is uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, do think that part of uh, ageism is ableism. Uh, there are a lot of the stereotypes about uh, when we're talking about ageism towards older people. Uh, uh, a lot of the stereotypes about older people are related to health issues, uh, and that older people that the, what's been referred to as the decline narrative, it will all get worse. So the physical health will go down, the mental health will go down, the cognitive health uh, will go down, and a lot of the assumptions based on that stereotypes based on that. If there were no ableism, then probably older people, older workers, would also be less affected by them. So if there it wasn't the assumption uh, or that it will all be uh, downhill if the people were uh, having health issues, if the workforce was uh, more designed for people with health issues, then it would be less an issue for everyone, including older people and the stereotypes will matter less. Do we think that all of ageism is ableism? No, that's also not uh, true. We uh, looked at different layers of ageism, uh, Sarah and I, and the... Also hear a lot about what we've been calling the too old for narrative, um, that people felt that they were now too old to go for training or too old now to go for a promotion. Uh, or if there's scarce resources, what we called, um, help me here, uh, Sarah. Uh, intergenerational uh, disentitlement. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where people would talk, oh, if the resources are scarce, who should it go to? Well, maybe you should go to the younger person. Uh, and that uh, if uh, there's little resource for uh, training, let's give it to the younger person uh, because they still have, again, quote unquote, a career uh, that they need to uh, build uh, there. Yeah, I think, and, and just to add to what Mariska has said, I think that what we're trying to say in in this research has been that yes we need to focus on the discrimination that people experience discrimination against people not being offered a job because of their age not even getting through to an interview because of their age not being offered a training opportunity not being considered for a promotion um that happens and we need to acknowledge that and 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 indeed um deal with it and and attempt to change that situation but at the same time this kind of decline narrative you know that as we age everything sort of gets grimmer really uh health and uh, and everything um is 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 something that we also internalize so you know when people say things like um oh i'm having a senior moment um well everybody forgets things actually you know and a and a, and a 30 year old wouldn't kind of go oh i'm having a senior moment um 
we're sort of we're kind of internalizing and buying into that. So as well as being discriminated against, we may actually limit ourselves and sort of say, well, I won't I won't go for that job, that job promotion, because probably they want someone who's younger. Or and I'm they're, they're, yeah, yeah. They'll they'll just think, you know, oh well, she's going out the door soon. We won't we won't uh, promote her. Um, but also that people worry about, you know, that decline narrative. You know, I'm fine. We've had people say this to us in research so often, haven't we, Mariska? Well, I'm fine. My health's fine. But, I, you know, how long will it last? Um, I'm worried, you know, that I'm perhaps not as quick as I used to be. Um, An expectation that your health is going to decline. It's yeah. like inevitable. Inevitable. Well, it's not, it's not true. Just round the corner, um, uh, you know, and and also this, I think that the intergenerational point is really important because, of course, you know, when we're interviewing people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, they typically do have families. Uh, you know, they have children and they have perhaps grandchildren and they do see them uh, having challenges in the labour market because a lot of people have challenges in the labour market throughout their working histories. And they do sort of think to themselves, well, you know, if there's a limited number of jobs, perhaps those jobs should go to young people rather than to me. And if I stay in my job, am I denying a younger person a, 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 an opportunity? But of course, the labour market isn't really a fixed number of jobs like that. If you if you look at countries where, uh, you, you know, if you look at somewhere like um, Norway or, or Iceland or other Scandinavian countries where people do tend to carry on working into their late 60s in higher numbers, you find that also there's not much youth unemployment. You know, it's a good economy. It's a, a, a buoyant economy. And therefore, employment opportunities are good for for everyone. Where you find high youth unemployment, you tend to also fi find high older uh, unemployment. So but it's a very, very strongly held belief. I mean, I, you know, in every project I've done in the last 20 odd years, there have always been people sort of saying, well, you know, I do worry that if I, I, I want to carry on working, but I worry if I do, I'm I'm denying uh, someone else younger a job. And they're thinking about their kids and their grandkids or their, you know, their nephews or their nieces or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I actually have a client that I work with who has just retired, um, who, I mean, he wasn't forced out. He's been working there for, I think, maybe 50 years. Um, but he, they basically said to him, like, you need to go <laughs> because we need to make way for other other ambitious people in the company to take your position. Um, so it's, I mean, I can see the negatives and the positives in that element that he probably needed that push to try something else because I think otherwise he would never have retired. Um because it's like a crutch in a sense. Um, but then also there is that's an element of ageism where it's like he's able to do his job as well as anybody else. Is that morally right to make him decide to leave? So I think it would be a really interesting case study for um for people to look into as a as an individual, but also from a um from a business perspective and and looking at how we should deal with those scenarios in the future 
Um, but we're coming to say that it, it, it's a crush and he needed to push, but did he? If he liked his job and he uh, wanted to stay in the job, um, why not? <laughs> and that's it. It's like, why not stay in the job? But when would you leave? I, I don't know. And, and well, do you need to leave? <laughs> well, it's, it's maybe a, we work till the end of life. <laughs> it's ultimately a capability issue, isn't it? Um, and you know, we've done some work with uh, with train companies in the past, and they're interesting because it's a safety critical environment. They have very good data on the performance of their train drivers, for example, which is you know good news for us as, as passengers. Um, but what that data tells them is that there are there are bad train drivers at 25, 35, 45, 55, and 65. And there are great train drivers at 25, 35, 45, you know, etc. Uh, that age doesn't actually tell them whether someone's a good train driver or not. Mm. Some people are better than others. So, I mean, it, you know, in your case that you've you've just um, given, I mean, if the person was still doing their job um, as well as the organisation needed them to do it, then there really isn't any justification for having having pushed them out. Um, if the person was beginning not to perform as well, then they should have been managing that and not using age as the excuse to to, to kind of nudge the nudge them out. They should have been sort of saying, well, you know, we don't, let's talk about your performance because we've got some issues. Are there things that would help you, you know, in, improve? Can we do something, you know, or, or whatever? And that's true for a sixty-five-year-old, fifty-five-year-old, forty-five-year-old, etc. Um, uh, you know, sometimes people aren't doing very well in the job that they're in they should be given an opportunity you know the training or development or mentoring or whatever it is to to improve and if you know they aren't able to improve then it may be the case that they need to be encouraged to move on but that shouldn't be anything to do with their age it should be to do or their gender or any other characteristic they may have um, it should be to do with their ability to do the job and of course, it may be that the way the job's framed is not not right. You know, going back to that ideal worker point, you know, that we have this notion we've got to wedge people into pre-existing jobs, whereas sometimes actually you could change the job, and the person might be even more productive in in the job if you if you modified it slightly. It's just we take you know we tend to have this well, this is the job. Can you fit it? rather than this person's great and has got a lot of potential what kind of job could we give them yeah yeah brilliant well that's your expertise isn't it employability and and things like that so anyone listening <laughs> take that and deal with it <laughs> um okay so um we're just going to finish up but to finish up i'm going to get you guys to think of one key takeaway from your research that we could implement in a real life scenario? One of the sort of odd effects of the changes that have been around age discrimination legislation and no mandatory retirement ages is that organisations have stopped talking to people about retirement because they fear that if they talk to someone about retirement that that will somehow be ageist. Um, and of course, you could talk to someone about retirement in a way that would be ageist, the, the, the case that you just you, you gave. But I think what that means is 
that at all points in people's careers, there should be opportunities through appraisals or whatever systems exist for people to talk about how they feel they're doing, for their line manager to, to reflect on how they think they're doing and to contemplate whether you know, they, they're looking to move to the next promotion point or, you know, they'd like to do something slightly different. And if we had better habits in talking to people about their work on a regular basis, quite a lot of issues around performance would get dealt with before they became a real problem. Um, and, you know, people would feel able to talk to, um, you know, their line managers. Well, yeah, I think I, you know, I might, I think I will retire in, in a year or so or a couple of years. At the moment, everyone is scared to talk about retirement because the manager thinks they'll be accused of ageism. And the person who's thinking about retiring thinks if I say I think I want to retire in two years time, they'll write me off and I won't get any other opportunities in the next two years because I think, oh, well, they're going. So we don't need to bother about them. So, yeah, we've got to we've got to try and deal with that. Brilliant. Great, great impact feedback for anyone who is looking at policy within their company and discussing retirement. I think that's great because, I mean, as somebody who's growing a business, I think for me, it's something I need to consider for myself. Like I keep toying with the idea of having a pension plan and, and things like that. Do and it now. Do I it know. now. <laughs> and I did I did look I did look into it and I've had meetings with financial advisors and things like that. But there's also an element of like it's not urgent, but I know I should do it now because it would be it's going to be fantastic in the future if the sooner I start. So I always say to my students, you know, when they sort of when they're going for interviews when when they're you know about to graduate or whatever, and they're going, especially if they're going to big corporates, um, oh, you know, they'll ask me if I got any questions. What questions should I ask? And I have said for the last twenty years, I've said ask them about the pension. And the student always goes, no, I can't ask them about the pension. <laughs> and you say, why not? It'd be a really good question. And they'd think you were really smart. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it'll probably be the first time anybody had asked that question in an interview. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I don't know whether any of them ever did. Just maybe one or two, probably. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Mariska? Yeah, I, I think the implication for, uh, for me is to think uh, through when it's about age and when it's about perceived or thought uh, uh, or real ability. Um, and the, because I think it does lead to different changes in an organization uh, as well. If it is about age disagree, uh, discrimination or age stereotypes, uh, then the solution is probably different than it's actually, when it's actually about hidden uh, ableism uh, in there. And I think that needs to be acknowledged more and looked at, uh, because if we're thinking about uh, it's about AIDS and solutions are about AIDS, it won't solve it if it's actually about uh, ableism. Well, thank you very much, both of you. And um, thank you so much for spending your, your time talking to us about um, about all of these amazing and important aspects of ageism. Um, if people wanted to find out more about the research, we will definitely include a link um, in the show notes. Um, but if you guys had any specific areas, if anyone had uh, a question for you, where would or how would be the best place for 
um, social media to contact you? Social media for me, Twitter is probably the best. Uh, Likewise. Likewise. Okay, so Twitter. And then what will your handles be? We'll also include that in the show notes. I put in show notes, uh, but it's at Mariska Vidihorst. I need to I need to look mine up. And so Vickerstaff is at Vickerstaff S. Yes, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) You can employ her as your PA. (laughs) There you go, Mariska. You've got another job. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, enjoy talking to you. Yeah. Thank you.